welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Ever After and we are talking about it with Amanda Wong. I cannot wait to share this conversation with you. I am new to this movie and it was a delight. My name is Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. If you don't know already, Ever After, known in promotional material as Ever After, colon, A Cinderella Story, is a 1998 American romantic period drama film inspired by the Charles Perrault fairy tale Cinderella, and it stars Drew Barrymore, Angelica Houston, Melanie Linsky, and Richard O'Brien, among others. Amanda Wong is an artist living in beautiful Vancouver, B.C., She's worked on all sorts of stuff. She's a background artist, and projects that she's worked on include Star Trek, Lower Decks, My Little Pony, The Movie, Carmen Sandiego, and more. We're going back out on the road for the spring tour. We're going up to Toronto, then we're doing a bunch of dates in New York. I think that there are still dates available for one of the Brooklyn shows. If you're going to be at any of these shows, please come up and say hello at the merch booth. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to see you. I'd love to put a face with a name. Uh, Please come on up and say hello. You Are Good is made possible thanks to your support. Thank you everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Apple Podcast subscriptions. You get bonus episodes in exchange for your support. Every other month this year, it seems like we're going to be covering Sex in the City. So we're getting into season two this month. We get into it with our great friend, Eve Lindley, which means we're going to talk about all sorts of things and we're going to talk about costumes. We're going to talk about things the show got right. We're going to talk about the things that the show got wrong. And I am excited to share that with you. And then uh, the other months, we'll be covering other stuff. We'll cover other movies. We'll do questions and answers. We'll do all sorts of stuff. So please consider supporting us on Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions. If you don't already, it helps pay for the show. It helps get everyone paid. We appreciate it so much. And in exchange, you get those bonus episodes. Thank you everyone for being here. All right, that's enough. I'll keep this short so we can go straight into all things ever after. Tell us how you're doing. Let us know how things are going in your life. We are at you are good pod on Twitter and you are good pod on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. And no matter what's going on in your life, don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. And to thank you, save that baby from that runaway horse. Sarah, have you seen any movies lately in which Riff Raff is sexually menacing to a teenage girl? (laughs) Alex, as you know, I've created a a virtual reality patch that can make any movie like that. But yes, I have watched Ever After today. Oh, my God. And uh, we're hearing the joyful and joyous laughter of Amanda Wong, who brought us this movie. Amanda, would you would you mind just introducing yourself and telling us why this is a movie you brought to us? Hello. I work in Vancouver's animation industry as a background artist. Uh, right now, I'm working on Star Trek Lower Decks, which, as someone who made Star Trek part of my personality, is very exciting mm-hmm. for me. But in the past, <laughs> I've also worked on season four of Rick and Morty, uh, the Milo Pony movie, and the Netflix series of Carmen Sandiego. Ooh. This movie released when I was about to start high school, 
I just remember everything from it. Like, I remember seeing the trailer in theaters, which had Lorena McKennett's number stance. <laughs> oh, my God. Lorena McKennett. Wow. I'm always bringing up Lorena <laughs> McKennett. And Alex is like, whatever. This is a part of your, like, indecipherable salmon-eating childhood. Thank you for bringing up Lorena Mc- McKennett. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I remember that YouTuber Todd in the Shadows had Lorena McKennett as a one-hit wonder video. No. And he's like, I don't remember this song at all. And I was like, how dare She's not a one-hit wonder. She's a legend. (laughs) This was also one of the few VHS tapes that my family owns. So as a result, I watched this movie so many times Mm -hmm. and... I've pretty much memorized it and it became one of the like classic lady film comfort movies to me. And then talking to people around my age, especially women, I think this is a very common experience. Yes, I would say that I shared that experience. This movie came out when I was like 10 when I watch it now, I'm like, I remember this whole script. Like, <laughs> and there's so many great one-liners that like are just burned into my brain. And I was as I was watching it today, I was realizing how many of them I will like think randomly. And I don't know why. And I'm not even conscious that I'm thinking in ever after, but one of them is like, she's like, say it again, the part where you said my name. (laughs) And also, as God is my witness, I will slit you from your navel to your nose. (laughs) It's just like, (sighs) yeah, it's canonical. It's canonical little girl movie. Oh my God. I'm so, this is my first time watching this movie and I was so pleased by the entire experience. As I said on Twitter, I mean, I understand that she she herself becomes royalty but it's like they made a cinderella movie in which cinderella was a a tomboy communist and i really appreciated that very very much she's a communist this is the thing (laughs) yeah she scolds the prince and she's like it was monarchy all along (sighs) and he not to blow anything but his quest uh for her ends up being to apologize (laughs) it's a real john mcclain kind of a move it feels so refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, before we go too deep into the details, although I'm mm-hmm. sure we will get into the details, would you mind taking us on a on a journey and telling us what uh, Ever After is all about? I shall try. <laughs> so Ever After <laughs> is a Cinderella adaptation, which is meant to please little teen and tween <laughs> girls who who like uh, Henry VIII stuff. <laughs> so like we're in 16th century France. Little baby Danielle's father dies when she's 10 years old, immediately after marrying her soon-to-be evil stepmother, Angelica Houston. <laughs> right in front of her, too. I love a movie that's like, kill the parent in front of the child. Totally. Like, that is just my style. <laughs> and then make sure to show... Auguste, the father, holding the hand of Danielle, looking her in the eye and saying, I love you, I love you, in front of his new bride, thus earning her her enmity (laughs) forever. It's true. And it's also like, Angelica, you clearly have issues because you've probably known this guy for like three weeks, you know? Do you honestly expect him to not look at his daughter? (laughs) But yeah, watching the scene, I was like, you know, I feel like the today sensibility is that like you should make children's movies less traumatic. And I do appreciate that we're steering toward that generally. But like, I do think that one of the ways kids kind of gain exposure therapy to scary ideas is, is in movies, as long as they know what they're in for. I also kind of always thought that this dad was played by Gerard Depardieu, and it's not. It's just some other guy with a big head. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm new to this movie, but I blurred in and out and being like, they wanted Gerard Depardieu in this role, yeah. but they got this guy. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's more, it's Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> okay, so Daniel's dad dies in front of her like daddies love to do. And then Jean Moreau in the voiceover is like, it would be enough 10 years before another man entered her life. And you're like, oh, that's a weird way to say that. <laughs> no, I'm so glad you pointed that out because I felt the same way. <laughs> you're just like, huh. <laughs> you were happy with that draft. That's <laughs> nice. <laughs> I pitched this in the bonus episode. I'll pitch it again. The book Daddy Issues by Catherine Angel covers all of this. Dads and gr- daughters in fiction. Please read it, everybody. <laughs> nice. You're giving that advice for free now. Yes. Um, just like Danielle would do. <laughs> so flash forward 10 years. Danielle is sleeping by the fireplace reading Thomas More's Utopia, the last book her dad ever gave her because... He just loved to give books out of her reading level. (laughs) And then she's doing farm chores and she's out gathering apples when the prince of France, whose name I don't even remember. Is it Philip? I don't know. Henry. Henry. The prince of France, Henry, comes galloping past because he's stolen her father's horse because he's running away because he's a big, stupid baby. That's my big thing I realized in this watch watching this movie this time. I was like, what are Henry's good qualities? And it's like, well, it's that he loves Danielle. And that's kind of it. <laughs> and everyone's surprised eventually when he like wants to do a nice thing. Like that's his whole thing is they're like, wow, it's surprising he wants to do not an entirely self-centered thing. So that's who we're working with. Yeah. You're like, what was he up to to this point? You know? <laughs> so yeah. So she meets Prince Henry. He's galloping by. She whips apples at him the way that a Philly sports fan would if they had apple day. And knocks him off of his horse which as an adult watching this i'm like ooh that could have he could have died just from that <laughs> and so they have a, a classic meet cute and then they have a meet cute again the following day because he gives her some gold to shut her up and then she goes to the market to buy back the servant who Angelica Houston has sold into indenture to go to the Americas. And she poses as a noble woman and debates with Prince Henry on human rights, which he has never heard of before. (laughs) And he's like, wow, what an exciting thing you're talking about. And then I kind of didn't realize that. I mean, obviously he doesn't realize that the sassy servant he met the day before is the same person. But the part at the end where he's like, and that was you who hit me with that apple. And it's kind of like, Yeah, of course it was. (laughs) Who did you think that was? (laughs) It's a big heavy lift to expect the audience to just be fine with the fact he doesn't recognize that woman he just saw. (laughs) But it's fine. (laughs) If I were making it, I'd be like, I would put in a thing about how statistically a lot of people had uncorrected nearsightedness. (laughs) 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 You saw like a beautiful blur. I guess an argument could be made that like he's so classist that he mm. can only see people in his class and I could we could yeah. we could strain hard in a textual read there charitably. That's true. <laughs> That's how I always thought about it yeah. when I watched this movie. Yeah. But whenever I like a movie, I tend to just make up reasons for when things get really fuzzy in my head. <laughs> like course. why is she an expert yeah. swordswoman 
even like when her father passed away when she was eight and i'm like well you know she probably had to defend herself from thieves when she was like sleeping in the farm or whatever i don't know <laughs> totally or like with flash dance where you're like how did she get a union welding job even though she's canonically 18 years old like when did she train for this and i'm like well i bet her school there's just like a ton of shop in her school one of those welding schools that you hear about so so yeah so they meet cute for the second time and then he like can't stop thinking about her he also meets cute with leonardo da vinci when he saves <laughs> his mona lisa which is a work in progress from bandits because there's a forest and the forest is full of bandits. It's full of what we would today call uh, Romani people, although I don't know if that's even historically what they are in this movie. But this fits weirdly with Swing Kids for that reason. <laughs> this whole thing where they're like, she's like, you think that they're just thieves. And it's like, but the movie they're in is depicting them as thieves. <laughs> and a band of thieves led by Jason Mantzoukas, no less. Yes. It's not Jason Mansukis, but boy, does it look like him. It sure does. I was like, yeah, I recast it as Jason Mansukis in my head. There's actually a second Swing Kids connection in that the costumes for this movie, which I think are amazing. Uh, the costume yeah. designer was uh, Jenny Beaven. She's done this movie as well as Mad Max Fury Road oh. and Swing Kids. Ah, Jenny! If we're going to mention personnel, I, I do also want to talk about the arc of this Director Andy mm. Tennant, who was a, a dancer in Greece, which is oh. amazing. What? Yeah, was 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 a background dancer in Greece. But this streak, like up to the mid-aughts, is amazing, mm. which is mm -hmm. it takes two, fools rush in, mm. then mm. ever after, Anna and the King, Sweet Home Alabama, and Hitch. And then Fool's Gold, and then a bunch of movies I've never heard of. Ah, Anna and the King, the sexy king and I for adults. Yeah. With Chow Young Fat. <laughs> yeah, that is like the ever after of the king and I, isn't it? That makes total sense. It's like, um, no, no, no. Anna and the king. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So she, they're having dates. They're talking about uh, philosophy. She's opening his eyes to uh, things that he's never thought before, like people who are not royalty or affluent mm -hmm. are human beings as well. She feels very strongly about this because she's hiding her identity by using her mother's. She's using her mother's name, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nicole Delancre. Did, did her mother have a specific standing or is she just using the name as a... No, she's okay. using it. She's taking Angelica Houston's Comtesse and putting it on her mom's name. Mm -hmm. Got it. Her whole family is wealthy but common at the time of the marriage to Angelica Houston's because her father's a landowner, but he doesn't hold any noble title. And specifically interesting, one thing that we haven't we haven't mentioned is like the reason why they have less money than before is Angelica Houston and daughters, uh, whose names I cannot recall, even though they're said a hundred times in the movie. Uh, it's Marguerite, who is the good one. I mean, sorry, Marguerite is the bad one. And then Jacqueline is the good stepsister, who is also played by Melanie Linsky, who is consistently good. Oh, my God. I can't wait. I have a big question that I texted Sarah about Melanie Linsky that I, I do want to pose. But I just want to. I just want to say sort of that uh, Angelica Houston's been selling the family stuff in order to uh, subsidize her her living, including all of the stuff that belonged to the father and servants. So things aren't going well in the family. All the money's being spent on. But regarding Melanie Linsky, 
Is it just because the first movie she was in, she played a girl who killed somebody that she has been treated like her character in this turns out to be net good, but I feel like she's always treat like her characters always got something going on. Like her character always. Alex, you know why? It's because she's Hollywood fat. Well, that's. I mean, I do, that, <laughs> when I said earlier, and when I was texting you, why I was like, I know why this is. Like, I think yeah. that I think that that's ultimately it. But she's always, you know, and in this, she obviously has sort of like a, a heartful turn. Or she's always has a, a little yeah. bit of heart in this role, and like things turn out good. But like, I feel like they're always like she hasn't been treated well character wise. From the beginning. Yeah. I mean, she's always great. But like the role is it's like, well, she's obviously the daughter that's not going to get the love interest of the prince. <laughs> the, the subtext of all of her characters for like at least 20 years was like, who would fuck her? Yes. And it's like oh. me, you, everyone, yeah, everyone. Everyone. <laughs> everyone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like she's always lovely. <laughs> But it's always like it's always like pitched like nobody in their right mind aside from like this guy who she's courting with her eyes and then ends up with at the end uh, would fuck her. And I do love that guy, the catch of the guard. I do, I do. It's really <laughs> nice. But I, do, I, I've, I've always felt like she's been like her characters are always being wronged in some way. And I think Sarah, you put it well. Like that is why I think that that's what she's she'd been given to work with up until. You know, up until what's the show now? Yellow Jackets. Yeah, yeah. Ladybugs, as you called it. Up until Ladybugs. Yeah. Anyway, they're dating. They're dating. They're having great dates. He <laughs> takes her to a freaking monastery library, which yeah. I was like, damn, that's a good date. He's like the beast in uh, the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> he is. He so is. And they're having fabulous dates. And meanwhile, the Comtesse believes that she is getting the prince to court her daughter, Marguerite. Mm. And so they're kept busy with that for a while. And is Toby Jones in this? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes, he is. He plays the Weasley page who is passing on information to the Baroness. There's like a collection of British actors who in movies Americans see always play like interchangeably weaselly little guys. And I think that like Toby <laughs> Jones and Timothy Spall are like, this is just like their bread and butter. This is what they bought country houses with in the 90s. They were like, weaselly little guy. I'm packing my bags, darling. <laughs> so the Comtesse has kept busy with that. The dates are going great. And then she... God, I watched this like earlier today, but like, how does she, how does she find out? How does the princess game get rumbled? So she gets a necklace from Toby Jones to give to Marguerite to give to the queen mm. and pretend that the queen accidentally dropped it, ah. which spurs the queen to invite them to a luncheon. And then at that point, the queen asks them if they know who Comtesse de la Cray ah. is because everyone is talking about her and no one's seen her. But... The Baroness knows that name because she knows the name of the wife of the first wife of her dead husband. Mm -hmm. She can't Google it. They just got to think about where that yeah. name is from. <laughs> and she puts everything together. And then her daughter has an amazing tantrum. Yeah. And then they find out that Danielle has been posing as a courtier. It's so good. Yeah. And then we have our 40 minutes of climax where they lock Danielle <laughs> in 
What? Their potato storage room, the cellar. <laughs> their pantry, I guess. The pantry. They lock her in the pantry like she's Jack Torrance. <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci has to come take the door <laughs> off its hinges. Do you like it, the Da Vinci stuff, Alex? I love it so much. It's I so thought it was cute. such a great device, and he's played so well. Yeah. Like, it's not, it could just be like a shtick that it's Da Vinci, mm-hmm. but it's like, how would Da Vinci be? And they do it. <laughs> yeah. And played pretty gay, I would say. Yes. Which is what we want. Yeah. Da Vinci is a homosexual in this movie, and I love that. <laughs> and he's so loving to both of them and gives them all this warm advice. And then the scene where, she says, a bird may love a fish, signore, oh, yeah. but where will they build their nest? And he says, then I shall have to make you wings. Oh, my gosh. That's also a good line reading. It's so good. It's so iconic. I think it like once every two weeks. And then he invents body glitter for her <laughs> as well. <laughs> So she shows up at the ball, and then, of course, her stepmother is like, you are a servant! How dare you! And then the prince is like, oh, it turns out I am a classist pig. Like, I was not expecting that. It's rough. That scene is really emotional. I have a hard time rewatching that scene. I was really taken out by that scene. Because <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, it's happening. And then it was not happening. No, and it's like, no, you got 25 more minutes, bitch. <laughs> it was a really convincing turn because I really did not. I was like, oh, I don't know. We're going to spend the next 20 minutes getting ready for a wedding. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. But nope. nope. No. Then she gets sold into indentured servitude. <laughs> To Riff Raff. Yeah. <laughs> who earlier in the movie says to her, mm-hmm. says these lines in this movie for children. Mm-hmm. I may be twice your age, girl, but I'm well endowed. Says this to mm-hmm. a child. And mm-hmm. then kind of backpedals by saying it's about his fortune, but it's about his dick. And that was <laughs> a lot to take in. The thing is that all the fairy tales are kind of about sexual assault. So by totally. the time you're an 11-year-old girl, you're like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you're like... You're like, this innuendo is a little on the nose, but okay. <laughs> yes. And then she like grabs a, a, an S word and uh, disarms him and is just like, give me the fucking key and I'm out of here, bitch. <laughs> and also, of course, I, when I first saw this was like, mm, this Monsieur Le Pew, he has a very interesting energy. But she like is walking out of the scary castle as the prince shows up to rescue her. And I feel like this is a very Jane Eyre moment where it's like Mm. she has to go off and like discover her her inner power before she can be reunited with him. And luckily for her, it only takes about like two hours. (laughs) Yeah, she's not in that situation for very long, or at least the movie doesn't make it seem like it. Yeah, it's like she just gets there and then she's like, no, fuck this. Yeah, fuck this. (laughs) I'm out of here. Which we love. Yeah, and then well, and then also the prince has like attempted to go through with his wedding to the Spanish princess, but she is sobbing so hysterically <laughs> oh my God. that he's like, you know what? Let's not, let's just not. And then she runs off toward the James Gandolfini looking motherfucker who she loves. <laughs> which is such a great scene. I love that scene. It was a great scene. It was cute. The resolve was great, but also like it being like it's commitment to her sobbing and it says like in the, the subtitles is shrieking. I was mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, like that <laughs> was how it happened. I was like, oh God, this is so upsetting. Yeah. And then you get the resolution, thankfully, that she runs to her schlubby boy and I love that. 
But you know what? I love that she is like sobbing on the way to the altar because so much of like history is about like, and they were crying on the inside, but not on the outside where decades of decorum and etiquette taught them to maintain a stiff upper lip. So nobody cried and nobody knew that everyone was sad at the same time and everyone just married the person they were supposed to and had a horrible time. So I actually looked into, because all the royal characters are based on real historic mm-hmm. figures, I was like, who did Henry actually yeah. marry? And then I'm like, Catherine de' Medici? Mm. Really? A Medici? Wow. <laughs> he also had a mistress named Diane de Poitiers, who was the royal favorite. And then his mistress, I don't know if they used any of this in the movie, but she was really fit and athletic, and she knew how to swim. Mm. And... Uh, also was educated in like finance and literature. So I'm like, oh, that's very similar to Danielle. Although historically, apparently she was 35 and he was 15 when they got together. Ah. That was not great. Yeah, (laughs) They were French. Yeah, they were French. That's too French. There's a limit. They were French before the 1970s. So yeah, there's such a thing as being too French, I think. (laughs) You heard it here, listeners. We're talking about you, Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah, I feel like it's, there's a, an arm of French culture. Not that it, like, America's creepier, but still. That's like, yes, and then, uh, 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 bon, I will be a uh, sex criminal because <laughs> I have decided that uh, philosophically, the only way it makes sense to live is as a sex criminal. So, <laughs> we- <laughs> As long as you're smoking a cigarette, it's, you know, it checks. <laughs> and uh, is that mime over there? Perhaps we will, uh, he will join us. <laughs> That's how they talk. Anyway, so they get together. And then I love how like our last what 10 or 15 minutes are really about revenge because that's what little girls love. <laughs> and Alex, you could describe that part. I love this so much. I so Angelica Houston uh, gets called out for the lie. She they're summoned. They're summoned to go uh, before the king and the queen. So the queen is basically like, uh, "You might die real soon uh, unless anyone here can speak for you." And so, oh, and by the way, sorry. Before we even get to this part, because it's necessary to this part. There is a confrontation between Drew Barrymore and Angelica Houston mm-hmm. where Drew Barrymore yeah. reveals to her that the one thing she wanted the entire time was to be loved by a mother. I and Angelica know. Houston was the only thing that she had along those lines. And Angelica Houston's response is, how can anyone love a pebble in their shoe? Ugh. Iconic. Ugh. I know. Can you believe that? There are two scenes in this movie between... Danielle and the stepmother and then the first one is when the stepmother is almost vulnerable with her mm-hmm. and that is actually my favorite scene in the movie because mm. um, I like the relationship between Danielle and the prince but I my favorite relationship is between the baroness mm. and Danielle because she's she's a little bit more complex than other Cinderella stories but not in a way that doesn't justify her being such an abusive wretch and there's a really good exchange where her eyes almost soften and she says, but you are so like your father. Sometimes I can almost see him looking through you. And then she's like, well, your features are so masculine. And 
you were raised by a man, so no wonder you're so built for hard labor. It's so cold. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right, right. I agree. I mean, there, that relationship, and we'll touch on this in this ending, that relationship to me is, the, is kind of the most interesting thing that's going on here. Although I, the, my only criticism of this movie, and this is like, a you know, a, this is 25 years later, is like, and I do think it is sympathetic to Angelica Houston's character, but like we could have done a little more on like, She's a woman in this situation. Shit's tough. Like, like you gotta, you hmm. you have to sort of muscle for any position of power and what's going on. But anyway, we can talk about that mm-hmm. later. So, we've had this showdown of uh, Drew Barrymore wants love from a mom. She's not going to get it. The call is to the court. Can anyone speak for Angelica Houston's character? And guess who can reveal Drew Barrymore. <laughs> In the royal family. They skipped the freaking wedding. The absolute nerve. I love that they skipped the wedding. (laughs) I love that they skipped the wedding to get straight to vengeance. Yes. And she. Yes. (laughs) This is what the little girls want to see. They know what we want to watch. And she's there. And it's like, it's like we could have sullied this moment and maybe it wouldn't be sullying. I could see an argument to be made for uh, using this opportunity to give her the grace that she was not given and let her go. But no, we don't get that at all. She's like, let her be treated as I was treated. And she has to go down and now start by this. This opens an interesting can of worms. She has to go work with all of the servants who were her family servants before like this Servants still have to be servants, and now Angelica Houston has to be a a servant. Yeah, yeah. She's like, go work. Basically, go be managed by my house servants. (laughs) Right. Well, what about Drew Barrymore's like servants that she worked with. Do we know what happens to them? I could be wrong, but I thought that the people who were giving the lay of the land, at least one of them was one of her house servants, but I could be absolutely, no. nope. It sounds like Amanda's saying I no. think they were in the castle. I think that they're like in a nunnery or something. <laughs> Amanda, do you know where they are? They definitely were not in her family manor. I had always assumed that they were the castle servants mm-hmm. because, that and I thought sense. it was, the reason why I thought so is because at the end, they fall into the purple dye, which... Yes. Oh, yeah, they love purple. Which is a royal color. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm like, oh, that's the closest I'll ever get to royalty. Beautiful. I also fucking love how the prince is like, I'm traveling in disguise. All I have is this giant purple crushed velvet cloak to conceal my identity. And it's like, yeah, like everyone wears back now. <laughs> so, yeah, she there's no there is no grace. Well, there is grace given in that she's not executed, which was totally on the table. And she gets to work with this like comic relief nun who I feel like is the protagonist of like a British mystery series <laughs> that was on for 18 years. I do like that there is a very funny joke where Angelica Houston tells Marguerite that she's like, well, you heard her do whatever she told told you to do. And she's like, I'm in management. I don't have to do that, which was like a very funny joke about management. Yeah. <laughs> she's a momager, okay? <laughs> she is a momager. And then that's it. That's the movie. That's ever after. Oh, and then they kiss. And then they kiss. And then I it's also really iconic that his last words are I don't know because this guy doesn't know anything. <laughs> and then we go back to Jean Moreau and she's like, "So you see, brothers Grimm, they didn't live happily ever after, but they did live music swells, not a dry eye in the goddamn house." Yeah, music swells, and then the last, scene, the very last scene is the brothers Grimm in a car from the mm-hmm. outside driving out. 
Or a cart. <laughs> As was the opening, we begin and end with an overhead shot of the Brothers Grimm's carriage, which I feel like is a way of them to signal like, it's just a carriage, bitch. <laughs> it's a regular old carriage. The real magic is feminism. <laughs> I feel like some of this movie was made as almost as a reaction to the 1950s animated feature by Disney, because mm -hmm. probably because that's like the most common version of Cinderella that people know. And the reason mm -hmm. why I think this is because in the original fairy tale, there's no version where her family rips up her dress and there's no version where she hmm. is locked up anywhere. Hmm. Speaking of which, both of those scenes in the cartoon are both like really violent oh like, yeah they're yeah. too much i cannot was i can't handle them even at as a almost 35 year old <laughs> i kind of enjoyed and i and i agree uh, i mean it seems like they're speaking to because they also even at the beginning make reference to like the pumpkin pieces etc but like mm -hmm. the i liked how the control over her worked in this movie, which was like mm. psychological control, like gaslighting. There's like some force about she had to do the the chores and stuff of the house, but it wasn't the same kind of like imprisonment that it had been portrayed sort of in the prior animated version. And this is a story I've read to, as the original, I read to, I've read different versions to family members over the years. So it's one that I'm familiar with and it's one that it is itself horrifying, but I, I did enjoy the way that control works in this movie over her. Hmm. I didn't enjoy the control. I enjoyed how it was portrayed. <laughs> you loved it. Did you read fairy tales as a child? I love fairy tales. Like I watched all the Disney movies and I read lots of fairy tales and I read some of the fairy tales before the Disney Renaissance came. So being a smart like seven year old, I was like, that's not how Beauty and the Beast works. Where are her mm -hmm. sisters? But anyway, to go on a little tirade. Yes, please do. Oh, great. I feel like <laughs> this is a very polite tirade. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am Canadian. Um, I feel like maybe earlier, like maybe in the 2010s, there was kind of a movement where people were reacting against Disney movies in general, which I understand why, because Disney is so ubiquitous and their form of femininity can feel very repressive. But I just remember everyone being really, really reductive of the Disney fairytale movies. like, mm. And it would be things like Beauty and the Beast is about Stockholm Syndrome. Little Mermaid is about changing yourself for a man. And then Cinderella is about waiting around for a man to rescue you. And to be honest... I really, really like the animated version of Cinderella. Mm -hmm. I think it's really sweet. And I think in that version, Cinderella is not actually super passive. She's just physically unable to escape her situation. Yeah, which is not the same thing as not wanting to. <laughs> because when she's locked up, she does everything she can to like escape and is like, get the dog, get the dog. Like mice, go get the key. Yeah. Ah, oh, the mice. Also, by the end of the movie... Like, she has such a great power move at the end after her stepmother breaks the glass slipper. And she's like, oh, but if it helps, I have the other one in my pocket. <laughs> blah, 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 suck on that. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think that, like, I don't know. the Dis Yeah, I agree with your criticism of the Disney criticism. Because it's like, I feel like culture is a pendulum, right? That feels pretty non-controversial. And what do we know about pendulums? They don't spend a lot of time in the middle of anything. They're like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. So like, I feel like we ricochet culturally between being too accepting of Disney and then like 
kind of critical for the wrong reasons, right? Where it's like, you know, the bad thing about Disney is that like it seeks to control the world, but like the work <laughs> Howard Ashman did for them is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that this movie came during a similar period where again, when I mentioned that there was a lot of like girl power stuff coming at the time. Mm-hmm. And then as a result, this version of Cinderella is like such a big tomboy. Like she mm-hmm. can ride horses and she can swim and she can climb rocks and she can she can defend herself with a with a sword. She's not like other Cinderellas. <laughs> yeah, and she's also like I love how she's not like other Cinderellas in a not obnoxious way because I think there's you know, we've talked about this elsewhere. I think I talked about like Bonnie Bedelia in mm. Die Hard in this capacity where you have this like badassification of women in action or just kind of like women in allegedly girl power roles where they're like wow it's feminism that she can do fucking everything without breaking a sweat but in this it's like drew barrymore is playing a character who like lives and works on a farm and her skill set is based on that sarah can i tell you a little something about some background about the girl power that went into this movie is it was um written by Susanna grant who wrote erin brockovich Aaron Brockovich, another great movie about a scrappy working class woman giving speeches to an idiot. (laughs) As it said on his poster. (laughs) I do like in this version, Cinderella is like, well, in all the versions, she's very, very kind and she dearly loves her home. And that's what spurs this whole thing when she goes to rescue Maurice. And she's like, I will not let them break up this family because they all use received pronunciation if it's old time Europe. (laughs) Yes. I love the sort of pan European accent she's doing. That feels like Chris Lambert in Highlander (laughs) where she's just like, I am all of Europe. Don't worry about it. And she also, there's moments where she sounds kind of Australian and you're like, no, whatever. (laughs) But you know what I love about this movie that I was really appreciating on this watch is that like, Maurice is married to one of the servants, Louise. They're Mm -hmm. like probably like, you know, 60s or 70s. And they clearly love each other very much. And so like when Danielle frees Maurice and brings him home, there is this like long, beautiful (laughs) scene of Louise and Maurice, like this old couple, like running towards each other through the fields and tearfully reuniting. And I guess like, wept watching it like I was you know I was very happy I bought so many tissues at Costco (laughs) recently but like I love that those characters get that size of a moment in this movie because it feels like so good-hearted I really like the characters of the servants and I like the scene where after her first meeting with the prince you kind of get the feeling that Danielle has has a little bit of mentionitis because she's complaining about the prince. <laughs> and then Pauline is like, yes, you've said that already about him. And it must be bad enough because her best friend, Gustav, decides to be an instigator. And then he's like, if you don't like him, well, how, what are you going to do if he comes right now? And then yeah. sends the prince to her home. <laughs> it is like there's a real like teenage quality to it all that I think is so nice too, right? Because everyone's kind of like that could be something teenagers are up to mm-hmm. that scene. Yeah. There's such a lightheartedness to it, even though 
it's in history times when everyone, you know, was executed <laughs> constantly, as far as we can tell from these movies. There's also like, there's something, I, I mean, this is so evident, but like, there's something about making Drew Barrymore Cinderella. Like, yes. Drew Barrymore is a person who is such a delight in every context, is like somehow like simultaneously like a parody of herself and is <laughs> beloved because of that like she's like goofy and confident and like lovely and just like her playing this character you know I always picture like Cinderella as like a, to some of the points that were made earlier is like a more demure character and not only is she a tomboy here she's played by Drew Barrymore which is <laughs> which yeah. just imagining anyone in Leonardo da Vinci times being Drew Barrymore <laughs> is a lot of fun it's also like I wonder about how early in the era that we're still in now of Drew Barrymore this was because right like in the early 90s she was in her like was she in Poison Ivy? Yeah, this was like mm-hmm. after this was after the table dance for Dave Letterman. This was after Scream, interestingly. Oh yeah. And before she produced Donnie Darko. Right, which uh, feels like fully adult, fully grown right. up Drew Barrymore. But I feel like like this and the wedding singer, like this was when I met Drew Barrymore and never been kissed the trifecta hell yeah where i think also she was in like these this fleet of movies that made so much money that like people were like all right we're gonna stop making fun of her because i feel like her reputation before that was as like a wild child who was like totally you know having sex and Mm. up to bimbo business you know well which was also just largely to do with the fact like i think like a lot of people are confused about why anyone who grew up in the 90s is like kind of obsessed with the 90s and it's not just because it was when we grew up but it was like also because it was like the last time it felt like time just squished together because of how the internet works and like Mm. I think like a huge thing of what ended up biting Drew Barrymore in the ass wasn't her doing it was the fact that like America knew her as like an adorable precocious child from E.T. forever and that's Mm -hmm. all they could imagine and then when she was you know a person with money and attention and fame who did all of the things that I imagine I would have done with money, attention and fame and an experience. Mm-hmm. People were like, shame on you for not being the eight year old in my brain. I'm very angry right. at you and disappointed. People do get so mad at you for no longer being eight. It's fascinating. So mad. Right. And that's, that's how the media worked. It's like you appeared at one time and then you appeared in a different context and another time and people couldn't reconcile those two things. And she spent like the nineties, I feel like trying to establish who she was outside of that, like confused expectation. Mm-hmm. And she did it. Damn it. Now she has her own talk <laughs> show and she's still adorable and everything's great. Um, why is, uh, Ever After, which turns 25 this year, why Ah. is it enduring? Like, why is it a movie? When I tweeted something about this, people came out, you know, screaming and enthusiastic. Why is it something that struck such a nerve? Um, well, first of all, I think it's just a really good, solid movie. Like, it's not perfect, but it's very, very comforting. Mm -hmm. And it has really good performances from pretty much the entire cast. Like, Mm -hmm. Angelica Houston is amazing. Her eyebrow acting is really good in this. The stepsisters are really good. Drew Barrymore's Mm -hmm. really good. The only one that I would say is, like, okay, is Dougray Scott. But, like, he can, like, he's not amazing, but, like, he can, he does what 
needs to be done for the story. <laughs> Who would you prefer to have in this if you were casting it? Like uh, of the era or or not, whatever. Heath Ledger. Oh yeah. Oh that my would God. be amazing. Because he commits to everything. Like if if he's in a rom com, he's an amazing rom <laughs> rom com hero. That would be fucking great. God damn it, Alex. I was happy with this movie before. <laughs> Live in your brain. I also think the costumes are particularly memorable for yeah. this period drama. And I think like there is a moment in movies like this that is kind of a fantasy for a lot of people where you had your makeover and it's like the girl standing on the top of the stairs yeah. with her love interest looking up at her. And I have to admit, that's like a recurring fantasy for me. So, mm. And the dress is just so good with the wings and the glitter. You know what? I think I'm like reached a point where like I am tired of like anyone judging their fantasies as silly because it's like all you want is for someone to look at you while you're on the stairs. That's not so much. Someone just has to be like, wow, she looks amazing. That's it. That's the whole fantasy. That's very doable. Everyone should have that multiple times. I love the bit where and it, they just this movie handled a lot of its themes and a lot of the things it was tackling tackling with subtlety in a way that mm. uh, is kind of surprising. And I, I I bring that up in the context of when Drew liberates herself from Riff Raff in the uh, indentured servitude situation. Monsieur Le Pew, which they had the gall <laughs> to name that character. We love it. It's beautiful. When she, when she liberates herself from that situation, the prince shows up to, quote, save her. And she's already saved herself, which mm -hmm. is great. And it's not like she's like, I saved my self because girl power like she just it's it there's like a very funny quip and then his like backup thing is to apologize mm -hmm. and it sounds ridiculous but like how radical is it that like he shows up to apologize and say mm -hmm. i'm sorry like unequivocally that he's sorry that he acted like an asshole a couple of scenes back and i you know it's there's a lot of places where the movie makes its point where it could put one too many underscores underneath the point and it never really does mm -hmm. it just like offers it all and i assume it assumes a repeat viewing from its more intense fans and knows that it's going to to stick with them accordingly and based on the kinds of people that reached out with enthusiasm knowing that we were going to cover this you can see how formative i feel like some of these messages were for some of the people who who watched it you know what part i love is when they have lost their way trying to get back to the castle. We have a lovely little mm. like, ha ha ha, 90s joke where she's like, men never ask for directions. <laughs> it's also, it reminds me of Goldeneye, actually, yeah. because Goldeneye spends a lot of time being like, this isn't your dad's James Bond. It's the <laughs> 90s. Like, this is, it's a, they're both movies that say it's the 90s implicitly, like in a wonderful way. And it's like, yeah, it is the 90s, but you'll only appreciate that later. But she's like up at the top of the tree in her skivvies. And he's like, you can, I don't know, swim and throw apples at me, climb trees. You can do all this shit. Like, what can't you do? And she's like, fly you know and it's just like i love how much of the movie is like he's just like you're so great and she's like i am great thank you no one has been saying that to me but i kind of thought it was true <laughs> well in the movie she's probably spent her entire life being unloved and yeah like we mentioned earlier about the scene between her and angelica houston when she says you are the only mother i have ever known and all she wanted was love from her which she got nothing of 
And I think that is the other reason why this movie endures, because the relationship between the Baroness and Danielle is so compelling to watch. Yeah, and you said that that's like your favorite relationship in the movie, and I agree that there's like there's so much energy there. What do you think that that's doing in the larger structure of the movie? Well, as I mentioned before, there is the rom-com between her and the prince, mm-hmm. but I think prior to this, the stepmother in Cinderella stories have never been as developed as this. Mm. Like I think in modern times, there has been a trend to uh, make the stepmother role a little bit bigger like for the 2015 live action remake with Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. But at the time in the 90s, they never shown like, why is the stepmother this way? Like you can infer little things like because of the way she spent, perhaps she had married Daniel's father for money, because otherwise, why would she marry a landowner, not someone of equal title? And then because she is so mercenary with her daughter, uh, Marguerite, in this time, that's like the limited way that a woman could secure stability for her and her family Mm -hmm. right and it's like the pride and prejudice problem Mm. where it's like you do what you have to do to ensure the survival of your like largely female family and then you have to become a big bitch because of it because that's the only way you feel you can get everyone into the situation they need to be in and you're like listen someone is gonna have to marry mr collins all right this is just the situation (laughs) right it's another rose's mom situation as well yeah speaking of titanic framing (laughs) yeah we're women our choices are never easy and then also thinking about your question about why i said i think the relationship between Danielle and the Baroness is my favorite one. Yeah. For me personally, I have a pretty complicated relationship with my mother. Mm. I think it's pretty common. It seems like it's common enough among Asian women because it's a story that you see again and again in media between uh, mothers and daughters and in personal essays. Yeah, this this story won 100 Oscars this year. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So I feel like I feel safe to say that this is a very common recurrence for Asian women, but like not just Asian women. I think like a lot of people have a complicated relationship with their parents and for the relationship between Danielle and her parent to be so prominent in this story Mm. and Mm -hmm. given so much time, I think that's another reason why this particular version of Cinderella is so enduring. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I, it's funny because I often bring up Ella Enchanted as a way to explain codependency (laughs) to people because it's like, and again, that's that's a movie that feels very made for like modern girls with modern feelings. And one of those modern feelings is like, I kind of hate my mom. <laughs> <laughs> to get a little bit personal, if that's OK. Please. Yeah. OK. Uh, for me personally, my father actually passed away when I was seven, mm. which is close enough to the character of Danielle's yeah. in the story when her father passes away. Mm-hmm. And then while my mother is not my evil stepmother, who was trying to like secure resources for two evil stepsisters, I would say that the passing of my father was very, very hard on her. Mm. And it made her, especially as a single immigrant mother, very complicated. Like, I think some of that was due to cultural stuff, like the tiger mom stuff. And then some of it would be to our specific situation. And I think that was part of why I took to to this movie so well. Mm -hmm. Although, I don't know, because as I saw on your Twitter, lots of people resonate with it. So... I'm shrugging. Your your listeners can't see that, but I'm shrugging. <laughs> they can they can hear a shrug. I feel <laughs> at this point. I do think that that's like a thing that 
so regardless of the specifics of the relationship and sort of like, yeah, regardless of like the, the personal specifics, the fact that, and you've touched on this a number of times, Amanda, that this isn't sort of a squashed down, like two dimensional, simplified, just like evil stepmother. Like why is she evil? Mm -hmm. It's a mother who acts in a lot of shitty ways out of like resentments and not sort of being sure how to navigate this, this situation. But it's, I think that there's, enough by not flattening her to be evil which means nothing it's a meaningless like evil is a meaningless thing and depersonalizes sort of the specifics of the hardship by using that there's a lot in here where people are able to see themselves and their own complicated relationships with their parents and then just again like that confession to her mother that ultimately she just wanted to be loved by her in some way you know how how resonant is that frustration that you know many of us just wanted to be loved and instead we got a whole bunch of other things instead and and it's something that the movie didn't need structurally right like you would Mm -hmm. it's explained enough you like know she's an evil stepmother you're like for the plot to work we didn't need this like character information of like you know regardless of everything we've seen like she still wants this horrible bitch to love her and you're (laughs) like yep that's what that's what that's what families are like Everyone's like, why do you want this person to love you? And you're like, I just do. Leave me alone. <laughs> like, everything will be fine once this horrible person loves me. I can just tell. Um, and then I like that Angelica Houston's character um, maybe humanized somewhat, but she's still evil and she's still mm-hmm. really, really fun to watch. Like, all yes. of her yeah. one-liners are so good. And <laughs> when she's mean to Jacqueline, who is not even... It's her own blood child who is also noble yeah it is really mean but for me it's really fun to watch <laughs> i described her earlier as like a proto miranda Priestley, which i really mm-hmm, like. she's like she a is. reconciliation of miranda Priestley and the witch from the witches which is i i really enjoy plus that lets jack jacqueline get the comeuppance at the end where she's like of course not mother i'm only here for the food <laughs> oh my god yeah i i love jacqueline i feel like probably the only part of this movie that doesn't sit quite right with me aside from the obvious note that danielle went and married the prince without figuring out what he thinks about slavery i'm pretty sure (laughs) but then again that forces us to ask what does danielle think about it it's a whole it's a whole thing well apparently um in the actual utopia which was written by thomas moore but i'm like wait the asshole in wolf hall but anyway (laughs) um in the real utopia because Thomas More was from a limited time. He could mm-hmm. not envision a utopia without slavery. So oh my his God. version of utopia was every household would get two slaves. Where did the <laughs> slaves come from? He was very fuzzy on that because he was like, well, maybe they're like prisoners from other countries. Oh, my God. So then and therefore it's fine. It's good. It's uto- it's utopia for us. It's not utopia for everybody. Is the book called Utopia for Everybody? No. <laughs> Leave me alone. That's Thomas More writing into the the letters to the editor page. (laughs) For his literary beef. Despite learning that terrible fact about Utopia, I do like that this is a kid's romantic movie in which she's like, uh, people commit crimes because of the state. The state makes people commit crimes. I was like, that is gold. Like, that was a big one for me. <laughs> I, I could see that planting some seeds or or, or helping <laughs> articulate some things you were already feeling. Uh, yeah, it's so good. And I, I love I love that speech. Let's just wait. I have it. 
Lee J wrote this in a YouTube comment. So thank you, Lee. For if you suffer your people to be ill-educated and their manners to be corrupted from their infancy and then punish them for those crimes to which their first education disposed them, what else is to be concluded from this but that you first make thieves and then punish them? Was that from the you're wrong about what even is justice episode? No, it was from Ever After, 1998, <laughs> Drew Barrymore. It was from a, a movie that I certainly watched one million times, and there's a good chance Amanda Knox did as well. <laughs> and there, and that's what you get when you make Ever After for the kids. They're like, hey, what about that thing in the movie? <laughs> yes. In mm-hmm. a few years, they're like, oh, you got Hillary Duff. It's a Cinderella <laughs> movie. It's Hillary Duff. And it's like, is she giving any speeches on human rights or like what? <laughs> I was actually thinking about this today because they just announced that they are doing a live action remake of Moana for Disney. And I was like, Wow. They just made Moana. Aren't they happy with it? (laughs) I know. They're really running out of the Disney Renaissance movies to remake. But I was thinking, well, it's hard to tell whether any of these movies will endure because they want on the one hand, we may not think they're very good, but they are aimed at children. And then Mm -hmm. I noticed that when enough years pass, you know, the people who grew up with movies that as an adult, you don't think are very good. Mm-hmm. Then people grew up and they're like, Hocus Pocus is great. The Star Wars prequels are great. And maybe they will like some of the Disney live action remakes that I personally don't like. But on the other yeah. hand, I find so many of them to be so thoughtless and disposable, especially the ones that are designed to be shot for shot remakes of the animated features. Oh, yeah. And that is not one. That is not what you can say about Ever After. No. Well, totally. Right. And that Ever After feels like it addressed, like, I think that people attach to it so much, partly because it understood what audiences actually wanted and sought to deliver that in a similar way to, I think, the um, 1994 Little Women, which is Mm. so like, Mm. you know, so girl powery and also so cozy and sweet Mm -hmm. and kind of I don't like understood what the sort of the girlhood fantasy of being loved and secure is about in some kind of an essential way. These Disney remakes are like, we don't know how they're going to age, but they're in terms of intent. And then, of course, many things made with like very little artistic intention have remained as classics because of various reasons. But yeah, in this case, they feel like they were made as spectacle films to make a ton of money all at once and then to just to be like inevitable, which is a, a weird it's an interesting approach to filmmaking. Alex, Danielle's dad is dead as a doornail and he <laughs> dies right in front of her. But who is the daddy? <laughs> beautiful. That was a beautiful, beautiful delivery of the question. I obviously, based on all of my responses to this point, I'm going to go with uh, Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> you love that da Vinci. I just, I just, I, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe this take on a fairy godmother. I loved it so much. I love any media aimed to children that take historical figures and give them some dimension. Mm -hmm. And I love how much he loved his kids. Um, I have to agree because I knew this question was coming up and I thought about long and hard and I thought about giving an unexpected answer or a funny answer. But I'm like, no, there's like a very obvious daddy in this movie. Mm -hmm. It's Leonardo da Vinci. You know, he's comforting. He gives advice. He has all of these little projects that he may or may not finish. (laughs) And then he fixed Danielle's door. I feel like that's like a very dad move. Yeah, that's great. Yes. I also love that he's like, I love that he's like so cute. He's just mm. such, a, such a cute little Da Vinci. And uh, <laughs> by the way, 
someone, and I love this person, is going to be like, Da Vinci means of Vinci. You should call him Leonardo. <laughs> and uh, yes, I should. But would I seem even more annoying than I am if I did? Also, yeah. So, <laughs> yes. And I love that he's doing his portrait of Danielle, like, while the marriage is happening. It's such a nice little... It's yeah, so nice to so just cute. be like, meanwhile, Da Vinci's doing a portrait. We just wanted you to know. In a way, like, it reminds of the Socrates performance from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Like, mm, Yeah, the Socrates dude. Yeah, yeah, the so- yeah, it kind of feels similar, but it's great. They do a great job of giving, which I just realized the guy who plays Socrates in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, his name is Tony Steedman, which I endorse. Steedman? Steedman. I bet he pronounces it Steedman, but you know. Steedman. Steedman. <laughs> Sarah, who's your daddy? Gosh. I feel like my daddy are uh, collectively Danielle's servant friends Mm. because, like, they're the reason she has class consciousness and they seem like good surrogate parents for her. And I love the scene where she, like, appears and she's all dressed and looking cute and ready for her spontaneous prince date. And then we pan to two of them fanning themselves in the stairwell. (laughs) And, like, you know. I, it would have been nice to see them like set up all fancy. Did we get like a tossed off line about this? Did they like get control of the estate or something? I don't know. No, but in my head, I assume that that was what happened. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. That's what happens. Yeah. And they just make honey and have old people sex. She gives them the keys because that's what she believes is going to happen up to that point. Right. She's like, mm-hmm. we're not your problem anymore. So see you later. Yeah, that would be right. That would be ideal. I mean, Danielle is a princess now. I mean, for all I know, she could be like, she could order Le Pew off of his property and then give it to her servant family. Wow. That's what happened. Yeah, it's also Le Pew, played by Richard O'Brien, who famously played Riff Raff, kind of says everything about this movie that they were like, and Riff Raff. Amanda, how can people find you? How would you like people to find you? Would you like people to leave you alone? Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, t- tell us tell us some things. Um, you can find me online on Twitter and Instagram. My name is the same, which is Amanda W.T. Wong. And if you are at all a Trekkie or an animation fan, you can watch season four of Star Trek Lower Decks uh, in late summer. Yay. Awesome. Thanks for being here. This is super fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was such a pleasure. Yay. Thank you for the girl power. (laughs) Bye. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for editing. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make this show sound so sweet. Thanks to Amanda Wong for suggesting we talk about Ever After and then coming on here to talk about Ever After. It was a delight. Amanda made an illustration of Sarah and me, and I love it so much. I love it so, so much. Uh, We'll share that somewhere on social, I'm sure. Thanks for supporting us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions, where again, you get bonus episodes this month, Sex and the City Season 2 with Eve Lindley. Last month, your questions and answers. Next month, who knows? Who knows what it'll be next month? Probably some movie that we won't likely do for the mainstream. I mean, the mainstream of the feeds, not the mainstream. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, A blast as always. We appreciate you. And don't forget... 
that you, my friend, are good. 